Well, let's turn to 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. And I would ask you, we're going to dive right on in, so please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. In 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18, continuing on with the life of Elijah after his encounter with the prophets, the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake of baked and on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went to the strength and the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb the mountain of God. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you will anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Seraphat, and Abel Mehaloah, and you shall anoint uh, to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth has not kissed him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, our passage this morning begins with a threat on the life of Elijah. He's put to death the 450 false prophets of Baal and Jezebel who stood up this false priestly order is angry and she comes to him and sends him a messenger and says, by this time tomorrow, you're gonna be dead. I will kill you. I'm gonna hunt you down and kill you. And Elijah in all of his boldness 
loses his spirit-filled boldness. We see boldness as a constant part of what it means to be a follower of the Lord God in the Bible. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, everyone that is filled by God's spirit is marked by boldness in the way that they live. But Elijah has come to a point where that boldness has, has left him. And fear grips him instead, a very different character from the one that we saw just chapters before, standing alone in front of the masses, calling out, who believes in the Lord? But now he runs. And you say, wow, what's going on here? But are we not the same in our own lives as we walk with the Lord and then we we fade away and we come back and we go back and forth? We waver because we are not a, a permanent people Sometimes we are stronger, sometimes we are weaker, and we always need to see what we're going to see in this passage, an intentional seeking out of the Lord that his nearness might strengthen us again wherever we are struggling in our life. But Elijah literally runs for his life. He goes from where he was in uh, Jezreel all the way down to Beersheba, which is almost 100 miles south. And as you see here in the passage, it says that in verse 3, he goes all the way to Judah. If you know what's going on here, Ahab was the king of Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. And he gets out, he flees the country, literally, and gets out of the area that Ahab is in charge of in the jurisdiction of Jezebel so that he can feel safer. But when he gets to Beersheba, He continues on. It says he drops his servant, which means he intentionally wants to be alone. And he goes a whole other day's journey out into the wilderness. And I don't know about you, but when I'm just walking straight out into the woods, I can get a good long ways out there. And Elijah was clearly a guy that was used to walking on foot. So he's probably 10 miles out or more into the wilderness so that he can be very alone. And what happens when he gets out there alone in the wilderness of Beersheba? It tells us in verse 4 that he sits down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He gets out into the wilderness and he is completely and utterly out of gas. He is exhausted and he sits down under a tree and he asks that he just might die. This is not some spiritualized picture. This is a picture of a person that is in deep depression and is struggling mightily with their life and the circumstances of their life and they're exhausted with their situation and they can't figure out what's going on and he feels radically alone. That's always a part of depression that we feel like we ourselves are the only one feeling this way and no one cares about us and no one understands our situation and even God has perhaps forsaken us. And he calls out in total despair. But I'll ask you a question. Do you know that significant Christian leaders in the Bible and in Christendom have felt this way? It's wrong. If you you look at the Bible and you see no character struggling with depression, if you read Christian biographies, and the only Christian biographies you read are the ones that gloss over all the problems that Christian leaders had, you're not reading closely or you're reading the wrong biographies. Because true biographies of great Christian people, almost every single one of them dealt deeply with depression and hardship. Why? Because there is great spiritual warfare and struggle in seeking to follow after the Lord. Elijah had an enemy. 
Our enemy, Satan, hated him, and all the ungodly people of that time hated him, and they were actively against him. This was not a, a partial thing or a, a, something that was not real. It was very real, and it pressed down upon him until it nearly crushed him. And it's the same way with every Christian leader that has ever led or worked in a church, and it will be the same way with you if you seek to lead your family to follow after the Lord and seek to lead your children to follow after the Lord. You will feel great pressure and struggle in this ungodly world as you seek to lead your family toward Christ. But I want us to see here in contrast to something that we saw a few weeks ago, that Elijah does not harm himself. There's something very different to sit down and say and commend yourself to God. God, I just, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm at the end of my rope and I don't know how to deal with this situation and I'm just going to sit here and just pour my heart out to you. But that is different than hurting yourself or harming yourself and seeking to end what is going on. Because what we don't know is that God, we don't know what God has planned for the future. None of us, not a single person here, knows what God has planned for the future. And what does Elijah think is going to happen? He thinks he's going to come to the same end as all of his fathers, which is other prophets that had been persecuted and hounded even unto death. And he thinks that's what's going to happen with him. But what did God have planned for him? If you look ahead a little bit for the story of Elijah, was it for him to be killed by Jezebel? No, it was for one of the most miraculous end of life stories ever to be told, which is a person being whisked straight into heaven on a chariot of fire. It's it's an astonishing story, not repeated anywhere else in the Bible, but he cannot see that at this point in time in his life. And you cannot see what is around the bend in your life either. And so we must walk by faith and not lose hope in the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those that love him. Elijah loved the Lord. And as you love the Lord and follow after him and walk by faith, you cannot imagine what God has planned for you. We must walk day by day. This is one of the great instructive passages, however, in the Bible about dealing with depression. When we look at depression in our own life, I think this is one of the very, very important passages that we have to keep coming back to. Because what happens here is God deals with him first physically, and then he deals with him spiritually. So often depression comes along with physical and emotional exhaustion. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, again, the body and the soul are connected. The body and the soul are created by God to work in a union. And when the body is physically worn out, it, re- it causes spiritual problems down the line. The physical and mental exhaustion of the soul are connected together. If we look at Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 32, we see this in the life of Jesus. We see this pattern a lot in the life of Jesus. This is one example of that. This is after he has sent his 12 disciples out in pairs and they've gone and ministered and now they're coming back and reporting on what God has done with them. It says in chapter 6, verse 30 of Mark, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. 
On that occasion, they never got their rest because the people ran around the other side of the lake and wanted to see him anyway. But Jesus kept seeking quiet places of rest for his body and for his mind. And what we see in the life of Elijah and the life of our Lord Jesus is directly from the Lord. That the first step of refreshment in, in the lives of Elijah and other people is physical strengthening again. So a couple of practical steps related to physical rest, because what we see here is that the Lord God brings to Elijah an angel to minister to him. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But a couple of practical steps here that is important for each and every one of us. The first is just, is basic, but we overlook it. And it's the keeping of the Sabbath. The first practical step of achieving physical rest is to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. We have pre- I've preached on this in the past. You can go look that sermon up. I think it's an important sermon. If Sunday is to you like every other day, and you work on Sunday just like you work on every other day, and you do everything you do like every other day, you do it on Sunday just the same, you are going to wear yourself out. Because God designed from creation until now for us to have one day out of seven where we are different. And part of that is actual physical rest. The other part of that we're going to see here in a moment is spiritual turning of our hearts towards the Lord God. That our hearts might be strengthened in Him. But there should be actual, real, physical rest related to Sunday. This day should be set apart. You should schedule the day differently. You should look at the day differently. It should be a time where you are physically resting yourself. So you go back, you dive in on Monday, and you get after it again. And by the time you get to Saturday, you're worn out. And Sunday is a day that you should look forward to as a day of Sabbath rest. God designed you that way. And it will strengthen you physically. The second practical step of achieving uh, just physical rest, it's eating regular healthy food. Now, what do I mean by that? And this can be a huge gamut, but eating real cooked food that actually helps you feel good. What's the opposite of that? Existing on Red Bull, Monsters, and five-hour energies, and french fries, okay? Eating that type of stuff and trying to live a life on that will kill you, literally. And you will not feel well at night. Because once you've had three Monsters and two Red Bulls and you try to go to sleep at night, how well does that work out for you? It doesn't work out. You end up staring at the ceiling all night, but then you wake up the next day and you're exhausted and you burn yourself down into this cycle of just self-destruction. Because the third thing that we need here is regular sleep. God designed us to sleep. Do you realize God could have made us like a plant that all we've got to do is like turn our hand up towards the sun and it like charges us or something? But that's not how God made us to be. He made us to where we have to sleep at night. And if we don't get any sleep at night, we're not going to function well the next day. And when you go into your day so dog tired, exhausted that you can't think straight, there is not going to be any spiritual blessing or refreshment in your day. It has to start from a base of strength. Now, I understand that uh, there's a lot of reasons why we might not be sleeping well, but the scriptures talk about God giving his people sleep and rest. And so if you're at a place in your life where sleep is fleeting from you and you just can't seem to get a good night's rest, I believe it's something that you should work toward, pray toward, and fight toward, similar to how you would take hold of other things in your life that you might get rest at night. And so physical steps, honoring the Sabbath, 
trying to eat well, trying to sleep well, because this is exactly what God does with Elijah. He goes to him and he supplies him bread, water, and sleep. And then again, he needs another round of this, bread, water, and sleep to get him back on his feet again. And it's interesting that he does not rebuke Elijah. He doesn't say, man, what are you talking about? Don't you have any faith? Why have you, what have you forgotten about me? No, he comes and brings him bread, water, and sleep. Bread, water, and sleep. But it's not by a raven this time. If you look back at the life of Elijah, the first time that God fed Elijah out in the wilderness, it was by a raven. But he's in a worse spot this time, and he needs more help this time than he did before. And so what is sent? But an angel. An angel comes to him and ministers to him these things, wakes him up. Here, you get to almost get this picture of, of an angel feeding him and strengthening him. Now go to sleep. Wakes him up the next day. Hey, wake up. Here's some more food. Like, take this. And it's, it's something amazing, something directly sent of the Lord to minister to Elijah and strengthen him. And I feel like in some ways, we often play this role in other people's lives. And before you jump to conclusions, let me just, let me just let me hear me out for a second. This angel was sent by the Lord to minister to someone. And I think it is often in our case that God would have us do this or minister to other people in a way similar to this. People that are very low, people that are depressed, and people that are struggling deeply with things. And we have an opportunity to come alongside them when we recognize that and actually minister to them physically and help them where they are. And perhaps it may even be feeding them and helping them get in and out of bed or whatever it may be, but we don't leave them alone in the place where they are. And we become to them an agent of mercy, similar to what we see this angel in the life of Elijah. Perhaps it will be a stranger, but more likely than not, it will be us ministering to a neighbor, to a friend at church, to a family member, or perhaps even a spouse. But we come as an agent of mercy to minister physically to people so that they can reach a place where spiritually they might be more engaged with the Lord. And that's what we see here, and that's what we cannot miss here. We cannot lose sight of how this physical refreshment serves a spiritual end. Because a great many people stop at the physical part. There are plenty of people in this world that, that worship the cult of the body. Like having the perfect body and being perfect sleep habits and perfect diet. I mean, this is an obsession for them. And it ends there because the soul is no part of the situation. But the physical refreshment here serves the end of the greater end of spiritual refreshment of the soul in being in the presence of the Lord. And so that's where we move. If we go on to verses 8 through 18, it says in verse 8, He arose, and he ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I don't understand that to be that this, this food took him that whole way, because it's a long way, but it, it strengthened and refreshed him and got him going, and so now he's going on an intentional journey to Horeb. What is Horeb? Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain where the Lord God keeps meeting his people over and over. And so he goes there in an intentional journey, seeking to draw near to the Lord in a place of silence and solitude. And so when he finally makes the trip and he gets there, it says in verse 9, he comes to a cave and he lodges in this cave. And in this cave, the Lord God does meet him, and he asks him a question. 
He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And this is not uncommon for the Lord. He does this all the time. It's actually a regular pattern of God from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament for the Lord to ask us questions that he already knows the answer to. He asked Adam and Eve, where are you? Why are you running away? You used to be here every time I came to meet you. He asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? God already knows the answer to these questions. So, so why is he asking these questions? It's, I think it's very simple, actually, because our thinking often is jumbled, and we're not quite sure what is going on in our mind. And when we have to verbalize something, it takes all the thoughts that are flying around, and it makes us put those into words and express them clearly. And so often, if you're like me, you actually learn something about your thinking as you say it, because when you're forced to verbalize what is rolling around in your heart, it makes you define it more clearly, and you begin to understand more about yourself and what God is doing in your heart. And so he asks him, what are you doing? And the answer is in verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord, which means I want to see God be glorified and his glory not be shared with anyone else. So I long to see God and God alone glorified. The Lord of hosts, the God of hosts. And then he expresses his frustration for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So I've been very faithful. I've been zealous for you, God. I've been serving you. And all these people, they hate you, and they turn away from you, and they killed your prophets. And he feels radically alone. And he just pours his heart out to God. And it's right and good to pour your heart out to God, honestly. We talked about this in a sermon on prayer a couple of weeks ago. But his genuine feeling of being alone is what? It's not true. Because as we're going to see here later, the Lord God has preserved a remnant, uh, 7,000 people in Israel that have not knelt, knelt a knee or kissed this idol. They're out there. He just doesn't know where they are. And we often feel that way, that we're the only ones that are still faithful, perhaps, but that is not the case. The Lord always preserves the people and is always working. He never stops his working in this world, but Elijah needed to be reminded of it. And so what does the Lord do with Elijah in this place? He works to revive his soul, to clarify his perspective, to reignite his boldness, and he sends him back out in the world to keep doing what God has called him to do. But how does he do this? He does this by drawing near to Elijah in his very real presence. If you don't know what I'm talking about this morning, this is a problem. If you have never felt the very near presence of the Lord in such a way that radically encourages your heart, then you're not going to understand what I'm talking about, and you need to listen more to what I'm saying about silence and solitude and the intentional seeking of being near to the Lord. It's one thing for someone to have a, a command read to you. God tells you to go do this. And it just kind of bounces off your hard heart. And you're like, wow, all right, that's one more thing that God wants me to do. And it's very different when you know that the presence of the Lord God is near to you and is working in your heart. It's the difference between having someone near to you that is a person that you have an acquaintance with and may tell you exactly what you need to hear. 
but they have no connection with you, and you don't really want to hear what they have to say, versus someone that you love dearly, and you know that they love you, and their connection with you is passionate, and is powerful, and is life-changing, and when they come to you and say, brother, sister, dear one, this is what you need to do. And you know because of their great love for you and that they are telling you the truth and they come around you and they hug you and they strengthen you and then they help you to go and do what it is that you need to do. This is what a personal relationship with the Lord God is like. And so what we have here is the personal drawing near of Almighty God, transcendent God coming near to Elijah in order to strengthen his heart, to have a first-hand near experience of being with God. And I think it's fascinating that this near, quiet, personal experience of Elijah with God is different in Elijah's life than the big fireball coming from heaven. Okay, just wasn't long ago for this incredible sign and miraculous thing happened where a fireball fell out of the sky and burned up this altar. But it did not refresh Elijah's heart like this encounter is going to refresh him. And it also didn't have the same effect on the people of Israel. They saw this thing fall out of the sky, but it does not result in a tremendous revival in Israel. It doesn't result in a great changing of the people. And so it is that signs and Wonders from the Lord have a place in testifying about him, but they do not change people's hearts. And the near presence of the Lord is what transforms our heart. And so we have this earthquake and this whirlwind and this fire and all these powerful things that come before to announce the presence of the Lord. But it says that he's not in these things. It announces him, it shows that he is powerful, but Elijah keeps waiting. And it says that when he hears a, a low whisper, or verse 12, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, or another way of translating that is a, a thin silence. Whatever it is, it was quietness. And in that quietness, he knew that the Lord was present. And in that quietness and in a sense of understanding that the Lord was present, he, he wraps his face because they were never to look upon the presence of God. And he knew something incredible was getting ready to happen. And so he prepares himself to go and enter into the presence of the Lord. The gentle, quiet voice of God begins to minister to Elijah and give him new direction. He doesn't really say much to Elijah, which is interesting. There's not a long devotional passage or a psalm or anything. It seems that him being in the presence of the Lord at this time was enough for him to understand that God was at work and had not forsaken him and had not left him alone to die and was still at work. And so I believe that this passage directly shows us how God uses intentional silence and solitude to minister to our weary souls. And we need to grasp this. We've talked a bit about how God ministers to and seeks our physical well-being for the purpose of us entering into spiritual devotion with the Lord. But how are we to enter into that? We enter into that through seeking periods of silence and solitude. If you have no silence and no solitude in your life, and your life is a nonstop gerbil wheel of craziness, you will not have times of nearness to the Lord like this. The Lord will not compete with your insane schedule in order to have time with you. 
And so it is something very, very important for us to understand that when we look at the craziness of our week, we must carve out times of silence and solitude. Don Whitney, a great writer on spiritual discipline, defines silence like this. Voluntary and temporary abstinence from speaking so that spiritual goals might be sought. Voluntary and temporary abstinence from speaking so that spiritual goals might be sought. Solitude is this, voluntary and temporary withdrawal to privacy for spiritual purposes. So voluntary and temporary, voluntary meaning I choose to do this, temporary meaning I'm not going to become a monk, I'm not going to go live out in the woods forever by myself and that that's the right thing. But there needs to be a back and forth exchange of these things, a healthy back and forth where we have fellowship with people and then near fellowship with God. We see this pattern constantly in the life of Jesus, where in the midst of all the whirlwind and the difficulty and the the craziness of ministry that Jesus is doing, he intentionally, as it says in Mark 1.35, rises very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. If Jesus did this and it was necessary in his life, we should be following after the pattern of Jesus and seeking intentional silence and intentional solitude in our lives in order to be near God the Father. Well, it is with quiet and undivided attention that Elijah sought after the Lord. We should not see this as a coincidence. He went on this long journey to this mountain for a reason. To, see, to be near the Lord, to call out to the Lord, to seek the presence of the Lord. And in silence and solitude, the Lord drew near to him. I don't know if you have ever done this in your life, but it is very important to do so. So I'm going to talk to you about three different things that silence and solitude do to help bring us near to the Lord. And I think it's very important that we not lose sight of these things. The first thing that silence and solitude do is that they minimize distraction and help us to focus on prayer and scripture. Silence and solitude minimizes distraction and helps us to focus on prayer and and scripture. Our world is constantly interrupted. I mean constantly. And we all understand what this is like, where we have some friend or some person that we really want to have a conversation with, a meaningful conversation. We finally run into them. We've been wanting to see them for a month. And then w- trying to have this conversation, people, phones, whatever, keep ringing and dinging and pulling on your skirt and whatever to where you, you never have the conversation. It's so interrupted that it never actually works out. And you're like, well, maybe next month we'll have a chance to talk to each other. And then you go down the road and it, it never happened. If that is how your interactions with God are day after day after day, week after week after week, it will, it will radically undermine your relationship with the Lord. You will not make any progress. Just like you won't make any progress with other people, you won't make progress with the Lord. Technology, I believe, in our day and age is such that we have a greater struggle with this particular thing than perhaps any other Christian generation that has ever existed before. We are radically addicted to distraction and addicted to noise and feeling that we need to be entertained and having something in our hand and checking something and why it is that we feel the the compelling need to look at our phone every time it dings is, is just crazy. 
there are very few people in this audience that have jobs that are so important that every time your phone dings, you must pick it up immediately and look at it. But when that happens, it dices up your life. And when you can't ever turn that thing off and set it aside and open God's word and pray because you have intentionally sought a place of retreat, silence, and solitude, it will radically undermine your relationship with God. Because God will not shout at us to get our attention. I find that the normal thing in the Bible, the normal pattern that we find in the Bible is that when God shouts at us to get our attention, it's when we've gotten to the point of needing to be disciplined. And the discipline of God is coming into our life. And that is not what we want. We want to be quiet and hear his voice long before that time. So that's the first thing that silence and solitude does. The second thing that silence and solitude do is that they open a door for true self-examination in our heart. When you get to a quiet place and you've, you've turned off the other distractions and intentionally gone to a place of quietness, it causes you to be able to really examine your own heart. It is an undistracted opportunity to see yourself as you really are before God. And when we open the scriptures in these quiet places and we meditate on God's word and we read the scriptures, we find that the scriptures are like a mirror a true mirror showing us who we really are. And it convicts us of sin, and it gives us a clear vision and understanding of who God really is. And every time we go into a period of silence and a period of solitude, we find that we've lost sight of both who we are and we've lost sight of who God is. And in these quiet places, we self-examine and we're able to confess our sins and make steps to draw closer to the Lord as we should. We are testing ourselves by God's standard and not quashing out the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, my family and I really enjoy watching this show, and uh, it's, a, it's a show that amazes me in this, because even non-Christian people that have no intention of looking to the scriptures and silence and solitude, they can't escape their own conscience. The show's called Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's this, this show. Uh, I'll, I'll blame Mike Kwan. He got me onto this thing. Now we've watched like five seasons of this. But they send people out alone into these austere environments, and they're only allowed to take 10 little items with them, but they take their own camera. There's literally no one with them. And they're filming their daily activities, and whoever lasts the longest wins a giant pile of money. So they're all out there to win money. But what happens is crazy. And every single season, once they're out totally alone in the woods for about a month, it all stops being about making money and it becomes this massive exercise in introspection. And it is unbelievable how many people end up leaving that show, not winning anything, but saying, it's when I, as soon as I leave this place, I've got to go reconcile with my wife. I've got to go confess to my son I've been a terrible father. Or I've got to go make good with my, my, my relative that I haven't seen in many years. They cannot escape the introspection of their own soul. After a long time of quietness, their conscience just rises up within them and begins to crush them. And every single time on this show, season after season, because it's part of the way God's designed us. When we get into a quiet place and we open the scriptures and we are quiet, the Lord begins to talk to our heart. And if you make no time for quietness and silence and solitude in your life, you are going to miss things about your own heart because you're running too fast and you're running too hard and you've lost the third thing I'll say, which is perspective. 
The third thing that silence and solitude does for us is it opens a door for the Lord to give us perspective on our life. It takes out distractions. It opens a window of, of introspection, and it gives us perspective on what is going on around us. We stop talking and intentionally isolate ourselves and ask God to help us know what to do. He does. He answers our prayers. It says, if we ask, we shall receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be open to us. If you're facing some crisis in your life, you've got to get off the track, get off the treadmill, and go quietly before the Lord and say, God, help me. I don't know what to do here. And the Lord will give you what you need in that time. And so it is a pivotal part of almost every Christian biography I have ever read where the person in the biography has some pivotal time in their life where they have got to make a crucial decision. And they're writing a biography about them because they're wise Christian people. And what do they do? They create isolation. They go away to some beach or they go away to some mountain or they go away to some jungle. And for Hudson Taylor, it was a beach in England. Was he or was he not going to start the China Inland Mission? And he paced up and down this beach all day long, just pouring out his heart to God until God finally gave him the answer he needed. When Billy Graham was at an absolute crisis in his life as to whether or not he could or could not trust the Bible, where did he go? Out into the woods, alone, all day long, into the night. He takes his Bible, lays it on this stump, and says, God help me, I'm going to preach the Bible. And he went out from that place knowing what God would have him to do. Francis Schaeffer, before his great time of ministry, crisis of faith, ended up walking the, the, the Alp Mountains just for weeks on end. God help me, I need to know what to do. By himself, struggling with God, with the scriptures, until he knew what he needed to do. Adoniram Judson, when he came to the end of his rope translating the Bible to the Burmese people, he went out into the Burmese jungle, which is amazing because they all thought he was going to get killed by a tiger. And he spent a month out there in the Burmese jungle seeking God. What should I do? How should I follow you? And the Lord gave him what he needed. And I am confident that the Lord will give you what you need if you will get yourself alone with God in his word and ask him for the direction that you need. God will give you the direction that you need. Just like he met Elijah in our story today, he will meet you because he still lives and he still speaks and his word is living and active and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. So to recap, We have physical and bodily refreshment preparing us for an intentional journey where a person goes and seeks after the Lord and in seeking after the Lord in silence and in solitude, the Lord meets them there. And so I've got to end with you. Where are you this morning? I don't know where you are. If you're a frazzled, worn out person that is a slave to technology and your soul is hollowed out and empty, and you come to the end of every day, and you're just exhausted, and you know you're not where you should be, I want you to hear the message that I'm speaking to you today. And I want to warn you against the the things of this world, because the world will tell you loud and clear, if you get to the end of every day, and you're just beat down and worn out, what do you need to do? You need to sit down and watch more Netflix. You need to watch more movies. You need to get another glass of wine. You need to play more video games because eventually that will refresh you. It will not refresh you. You will find that you will be up all night long and then you'll be more tired the next day and you won't get up and read your Bible. You won't spend time with the Lord and it creates a vicious downward cycle that in fact brings you further away from the Lord and hollows your soul out more. 
Instead, seek true rest, seek true refreshment, and make time for the Lord. And so this is my challenge for you, that you break from the normal patterns of this lost world that lead to death, and that you simplify your life. You might say, oh, it's impossible. My life is so busy. It's so insane. You realize that every person that's ever lived felt like that? It's not a new thing. It's just now it's more about how do we get certain things in. Back in the day, it was how do I put enough food by so I don't die this winter? But everybody has always been radically busy. There's never been a Christian in this world that has not had to say, all right, how am I going to take hold of my day today to make time for the Lord? And so I challenge you to simplify your life, to take hold of real rest so that your heart might be prepared for an intentional time of silence and solitude. And second, that you might make time. Make time and find time to be alone with the Lord. First, on a regular basis, on a Sabbath day regularity, on an everyday regularity, in a small way, carve that time out. But then in a bigger way, you need annual times or something that when the big decisions come and you feel like you've just kind of reached a frazzled point where you literally go out this direction to the beautiful mountains that God's given to us just an hour from here and you get up in those mountains with just the Bible and a notebook and nothing else to eat or drink and you spend time with the Lord fasting and asking for God to give you a clear understanding of what he would have for you to do and to refresh your soul and God will meet you there. Let's pray. Actually, I want to read, I want to read a statement from A.W. Tozer before we pray, and then we'll pray together. This is from A.W. Tozer, a great godly man. Retire from the world each day to some private spot. Even if it be only the bedroom, for a while, I retreated to the furnace room for lack of a better place. Stay in the secret place till the surrounding noises begin to fade out of your heart. Give yourself to God. Then be what and who you are without regard to what others think. Learn to pray inwardly every moment. Call home your roving thoughts and gaze on Christ with the eyes of your soul. All the above is contingent upon a right relation to God. Through Christ and daily meditation on the scriptures, lacking these, nothing will help us. Granted these, the discipline recommended will go far to neutralize the evil effects of externalism and to make us acquainted with God and our own souls. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for how you met Elijah. I thank you for your great mercy to Elijah in his low place. Lord, when he had reached the end of himself and he just didn't have anything else to give and he just sat down. Lord, you met him there And you sent an angel to minister to him, to strengthen him physically again. And I pray for those in this congregation this morning that are just physically worn out and beat down. I pray, God, that you would strengthen them, that you would bring another person alongside them to help strengthen them in their time of need. And that we would be a people that are not physically exhausted through the running after the things of this world. I pray that you would help us to look at our lives and see how it is that we might simplify them in order to make time for spiritual refreshment. And I pray, Father, that as we look and seek after personal times with you, and as we are here this morning on this Lord's Day, and we go out from this place into the Lord's Day, that we would intentionally seek silence and solitude, time alone with you. And I pray for the people of this congregation that you would meet us 
Lord, that you would help us to rightly understand who we are, that we would confess our sins and humble ourselves before you, and that we would call out for your salvation, and that we would be saved by you, that we would be made new in Christ. I pray for radical spiritual refreshment amongst the people of this congregation as we seek your face this week and going forward. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.